Our New Testament lesson is found in 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2, verses 4 through 12 this morning. Listen carefully to God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, in celebration of our Lord Jesus who sits at your right hand, we ask that you would grant us your spirit and lead us into all understanding that we know what it is to be choice and precious in your sight because of your son, Jesus. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. On Friday this week, I received an emergency text message from my neighborhood association, and it alerted me to the fact that we are in drought conditions in our neighborhood. And so they had many instructions for us about how to care for our yards. Of course, this was already known to me as a homeowner because my yard was dying, perhaps like yours. The spots where the sprinklers don't have good coverage, it becomes all very apparent because the grass is simply withering under the incredible heat that has fallen upon us here in Florida. I believe you may need to repent or something. But it's just a known fact, as I met with the, the yard man who was coming to help me with my problem to address the irrigation system and to help me with the weeds, he said, well, you need to understand how St. Augustine grass works. He says, how is your watering schedule? And I said, well, I try to water it often. And he said, how long do you run it? And I said, well, for 15 minutes. And he said, well, why is that? Because I'm cheap. That's why. I don't, don't want to spend all the money in watering it. And he says, well, here's the error twice a week for 45 minutes because the grass actually has to be saturated. If you only sprinkle it a couple, if you do it several times a week only for 15 minutes, the water simply runs through the soil and never saturates the roots, and so the grass will simply die. It's important for us to recognize those very simple metaphors from creation because they're so often used by God and his special revelation to us because they match with our own spiritual lives. And Peter instructed us last week that we would long for true spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk, 
that by it we may grow up into salvation. That is, after he gives a string of four different commands, this was the final command that we would crave pure spiritual milk that would enable us to grow up into salvation. That is not to obtain it, but to become mature in it. And he's pointing us to the fact that we have to nurture our spiritual lives, that that nurture is necessary, or we too will experience drought and difficulty. And we've seen that the entire context of this letter is one in which a congregation, in fact, many congregations across a broad swath of territory are being addressed by the conditions of the Christian life in which they are experiencing trial and trouble, sadness and sorrow. And Peter writes to them as a pastor, and it's a word from God to them and to us about what it looks like to thrive in the middle of the different struggles that we face in the Christian life. And specifically in front of us is the question, how exactly does God nurture us in the midst of all those difficulties? And Peter lands in one very simple answer in verse 4. And that is that he directs us again and again to the foundation of our faith, Jesus Christ. If you follow along, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so Peter lays out for us the way of nurture is that we come, and this isn't just a one time in which we arrive at Jesus, but rather that we are coming to Jesus. We are arriving to him. We bring ourselves to him in faith. Because he is designated for us as the living stone. Now this is an intentional designation that Peter has drawn from the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 118, in Isaiah chapter 8, in Isaiah chapter 28. That he actually quotes all three of these locations. That Jesus is the cornerstone established as the one who would deliver the people of God. And he is the living one because he is alive from the dead. And so we are to come to him, the living stone, who obviously the world had rejected. They didn't find him impressive at all. In fact, they found him so underwhelming that they put him to death. But he was vindicated by God and he was raised. And so we are told by scripture, God declares that Jesus is the chosen and precious one. He is the cornerstone into which everything else will be built. Now, it's perhaps different for us today. Construction methods have changed. But in the ancient world, the selection of the cornerstone was actually a very arduous process. If you were building a large public structure, there was actually tremendous amount of time and effort put into the selection of the cornerstone. Because if the stone was out of square... If it were not level, if it were not sufficiently strong, the entire building that would be constructed around it would then be out of kilter, and it would be a faulty building. And so to have a chosen and precious cornerstone, if you were constructing something, was essential. And what God communicates to us today is that chosen and precious cornerstone is the very source of our nurture. 
That this is who we come to. We come to Jesus, the living one, who is at God's right hand, reigning over all things. And yes, we come to his word where we hear him. But this is the source of that renewal. Because Peter takes us a step deeper. Not only do we come to Jesus, but why? And the why is found where he explains that we are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, because he is the living stone, we are alive in him. He says, like living stones, you are now being built up as this spiritual house. We're joined to him. And all the benefits that we derive because of Jesus are found because we're united to him, tied together into him, the foundation. And this is the means of Christian nurture is to come to Jesus to experience all the spiritual graces that are ours. The forgiveness of our sins, the freedom from the control and captivity of sin, hope for the future, freedom from the discouragement of a hopeless world. All that is ours, and it's experienced as we come to Jesus in faith, tied into the cornerstone, the very foundation. And that this is the way of renewal. That Jesus shares with us what is his, what belongs to him. His death, his resurrection, his ascended victory. All of this becomes ours when we come to him in faith. Now as a kid, I grew up in a mainline church for a number of years, perhaps similar to many of you. And that church had many of the distresses of a mainline church in the 1980s. There were different factions within it in which there was an evangelical faction that believed in the authority of Scripture and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that was the one hope for salvation. There was also another faction in the church that wanted to see a different agenda at play. One of the dynamics in this particular church that we spent a few years in was that the pastor would be rotated out every few years to keep the different factions happy. It was one way of keeping the peace. One new pastor had arrived after one particularly well-loved pastor had departed, and his name was Malloy Owens. And I remember when Malloy arrived, people were very underwhelmed with his preaching, and it was my first exposure to the judgment of preachers. It's rather savage to hear the critiques of him. But one of the most interesting things as a kid sitting in the pew in those years was something happened to Malloy in all of that process. Malloy's preaching began to change, and there was a certain power that began to come from the pulpit. And certain people were not showing up, and other people were flooding in. Malloy was preaching the one hope of the world that sinners have that's found in Jesus, and he was holding him out to them to come to him, the living stone. It was amazing. There was life and revitalization happening in the church. And there was a famous church meeting that took place some number of months after Malloy began so strongly preaching the gospel. And one of the leaders of the alternate faction stood up and said, I don't want to hear any more about this Christ <laughs> in the church. And friends, this is the situation that we can get, that we can find ourselves in. Where we pull away from a Christocentric focus, Christ being at the center of everything. And what happens is that we wither and die without the pure spiritual milk, the living stone himself. 
in which he breathes through the word of God and ministers to us by his spirit, that we do dry up and we find ourselves in drought. And so we have to be nurtured by him. And Peter, as a good pastor, directs us to come to him again and again to be nurtured in this way, to be built up and grow up into salvation as we grow up into this spiritual house. Now, one of the main questions that all of this begs, though, is what is God's purpose or design for us as those who are nurtured in this way? If we do feed on the living stone, that he is the cornerstone established in Zion, that he is the precious and chosen one, and that in him we are then precious and chosen, what does God want to do with us? What is the point of all this? And there's three things particularly that Peter lays out for us. First, you'll find in verse 5 that we are to serve God. Peter says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And he explains why, what the purpose is. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the purpose. Now, many of us are not comfortable with the term priest, but it's one that the Bible is fairly fluent in. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, all of the people were considered to be priests, that they were a holy nation. And then, of course, there was a special class of people who were priests in a different way. But what Peter announces here is that in Jesus Christ, we have all been set apart as priests in the service of God in order to offer spiritual sacrifices. And these spiritual sacrifices, as we look through the New Testament, in the book of 1 Peter, and also particularly in the book of Hebrews, we'll discover that those spiritual sacrifices are the sacrifices of joy and thanksgiving, in which we offer our praise to God because of all the innumerable benefits that he's lavished upon us in Jesus. And so we're being directed to serve God in thanksgiving and worship. This is where what God's purpose and design is in nurturing us, is that we would then return thanks to him and rejoice in him in all his goodness. And friends, this is the logic that has driven particularly our tradition in the church to weekly observe the Sabbath. That there's an importance to setting apart one day in seven in which we observe that day for the sake of every other day. That because of the bounty and the goodness that God pours upon us on six days, we devote one day to giving thanks to him and rejoicing in that. That it's not sufficient just to go to our own leisure or to take the day off or to observe it how we want to. But rather the purpose of the day is that we would gather before God and assemble in his presence to be nurtured by him, to hear from him, and then to return thanks to him. And you'll notice even in that structure and order, this is the way that we structure our own worship services, is that hearing from God, we will then respond to him. We'll respond to him in song and in prayer and in offerings. That this is appropriate in Christian life, that having received the mercy of God, Peter says, you once did not know God. You once did not experience the mercy of God, but now you have. We respond with thanksgiving to him. Now, the second piece 
is that we are to proclaim his excellence. If you follow with me in verse 9, Peter piles up the labels that are assigned to God's people who are in Jesus. Just as Jesus is the precious and chosen one, we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then he explains why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So not only have we been set apart for spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving and joy, but we've been set apart in order to proclaim the excellence of God. That is, as those who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, that all he has given us in Jesus is ours freely, that God has set us apart for this, that then it is our part to respond with a life of witness that is both verbal and in our actions. You see, it's not just about words, and it's not just about character, it's not just about witness, and it's not just about deeds. It is, of course, about all of that being integrated. And you see, for these early Christians who were living in this area of what is modern-day Turkey, they were a vast minority. It's, in fact, difficult for us to get our minds around their minority status. They lived in a religiously plural culture where there were many different expressions of religion. And there, were no, there was no problem in that culture with the many different expressions of religion but one. You were not to make any exclusive claim on religious truth. And that was the stumbling block that Peter speaks of, the cornerstone that was laid in Zion, that God has assigned one to be precious and choice in his sight into which his spiritual house is being built. And there's an exclusivity inside of Christianity that made the people of the first century chafe. They were allergic to it. They didn't like it. This was a harsh message. And so these early Christians, much like us today, lived in culture that was religiously plural and where the claim of their faith put them at odds. And many people found them strange and odd. Why didn't they just go along with the program? Why were they so stubborn and insistent on believing in Jesus, this living stone, a man supposedly up from the dead? And so Peter points the church as to the task that we have to engage and that is having fully integrated lives in our deeds and in our words as we patiently bear witness to our faith. Now, one of the things we know from the world of the first century is that Christians were exposed to gross caricatures and misunderstandings. And we live with the same dynamic today. I'm always amused when I talk with my neighbors and people that I meet when I tell them that I'm a pastor and I watch them take that little step back. <laughs> into awkwardness, and I know that there's all kinds of assumptions being made about what that means about me, um, and, uh, you know, because there are stereotypes that travel, and today, in order for us to engage in the task of evangelism, one of the most demanding things that you and I face is that we have to encounter all of those stereotypes, and they're silent, and they're unspoken, but we need to be very well versed in them, and then with lives that are full of goodness and lives that are full with faith, we need to engage 
and show people a compelling faith and encounter with God through Jesus Christ. Look what Peter says in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, these are all the stereotypes and misunderstandings they had, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That this is all part of it. And that evangelism in a culture that has moved on from Christianity and is actually profoundly ignorant of what the Christian faith is and means is that we have to engage this way, patiently, with our words and in our deeds, showing forth what the glory of God really looks like in character, also in reason. And that's the challenge that we share, but we are to proclaim His excellencies. We do so... Because we've tasted something that we believe is better than anything else on offer. And so we promote that and we put it in front of people. The third piece of this, though, as to what God is doing in nurturing us, is that we are to turn away from ourselves. If you follow with me in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And this is important for us to own, because Peter here identifies something that's rather essential, that in the Christian church, the problem is not out there. But rather, what he identifies is that there is a problem that lives right within us, that though we are the chosen people, Though we are the people of God's own possession, though we are this priesthood set apart for these tasks of spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming the excellencies of God, that we have something lurking inside of us that is a massive problem, that we have the passions of the flesh. And what this speaks of is not just the passions of the body, but when he uses the term flesh, it's talking about the sinful nature. And that is that we have been forgiven And God has broken the controlling power of sin, and yet we still possess the radical ability to sin. And he is alerting us to the problem and the depth of it, that as sojourners and exiles, we are to be controlled, to abstain from those passions. And that means that we must clearly identify them. Now, we could go through all the passions of the flesh, and we would be here long past our contract at the Ramada. There obviously is greed. There are sexual passions. There's materialism and covetousness. There's obsession with our image, both physical and social standing. There is the need for acceptance driven by our insecurities. There's comfort and selfishness. We could go in a multitude of directions talking about the passions of the flesh. But what's incumbent upon each of us is to become very familiar and aware as to where those particular passions drive us, where they exist in our own character, that we need to become aware of them. And then because God tells us to say no to them, the question becomes how? Because as people who know their weakness, who experience the pull of those passions and the draw and allure, how do we say no to those things? The clear logic that God puts in front of us this morning is that a greater yes has been spoken over our lives. That we are his people. 
that we are precious and chosen in Jesus Christ. That we have been set apart for His service. That this is the yes of God that's been imprinted upon you, that you've been set apart for Him. And we are now His possession, so we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. But rather, body and soul, we belong to Him. And this, friends, is the dynamic that encourages us and enables us and sustains us in being able to say no to ourselves, to engage in self-denial. Because God, into the eternal counsels, the mystery before the foundation of the earth, set Jesus Christ apart, the Lamb who would be slain. And then he foreknew us in him. And he then manifests Jesus in time to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. And he did all of this for you. For those foreknown and set apart by the sanctification of the Spirit, as he says in verse 2. And this is the compelling and motivating factor that draws us into a life of self-denial. It draws us into proclaiming his excellencies to all the ends of the earth. It draws us into offering spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, serving God in this way. And this is the direction that the nurture God gives us through the living stone points us. A life of worship, a life of witness, and a life of self-denial. Go with the stream of that, and you're in keeping with the grace of God and what he intentions in your life. Let's pray and ask him for help. And Father, we do give thanks for the living stone, Jesus Christ, that he was precious and chosen in your sight, and in him we too are precious and chosen, set apart. Your affections have fallen upon us. Your great love is ours, and we ask that that love would compel us and draw us and push us that we would offer spiritual sacrifices of joy and thanksgiving with whole and full hearts, that we would offer witness to you both in word and in deed as we proclaim your excellencies in all things, and that we would also turn away from ourselves, that we would be very aware of the passions that live within us that draw us away from a love for you and our neighbor. Help us, God, where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.